Are you ready to study the scripture? Let's pray, and uh, then we'll open our Bibles together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God. The entrance of it gives us light. Illumination of our minds and our hearts. You lay our hearts open as we read the scripture. We pray that it would come alive to us. That the living, active word of God would reveal who Jesus is. And that we could in turn respond and follow. Do this work in us as we read your word together, we pray. We are open. We have our eyes open. We have our ears open. And we want you to speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we're going to talk about resurrection people. The fact that we are resurrection people because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a centerpiece for who we are as his people. And because his resurrection is so powerful, we, we, have, a, we have a need to make sure that this influences and affects us as his people. We need to think different, act different, walk different, interact with others in a different way. The resurrection makes a difference in our lives, and we're going to talk about that today. My little boy, Ethan, he's six years old. I have, um, I have five kids, for those of you who don't know. So our house is constantly loud, and uh, people are laughing a lot and, and actually crying a lot as well. Um, but my little boy, Ethan, he is such a sweet boy. He is the personality of the bunch. He has never met a stranger. And if you, if you see him in the hall here sometimes, you've got to choose whether or not you want to talk to him because as soon as you talk to him, he is not letting you go. So, um, so anyway, he is just such a wonderful kid. And so he was talking to his mother the other day, and he said to her, Mom, when I'm 10, he's six years old, right? He's, he's a planner. So when I'm 10 years old, I want to have braces and be paralyzed. <laughs> and his mom looked at him and said, what? No, what? What did you say? I, when I'm 10, I want to have braces and I want to be paralyzed. And she's like, well, honey, honey, I, I, braces, you probably will have braces uh, if the other children are any indication. But... Um, paralyzes when you're, um, you can't move your legs or when, you're, when you can't move your body. And he was like, oh, it's, you mean it's not when you, they take you and they push you down under the water and your head goes under and then you come back up? <laughs> She's like, no, that's being Baptized. Baptized. He's like, oh, yeah, when I'm 10, I want braces and I want to be baptized. <laughs> That's a pretty good goal, right? Just like Ethan, sometimes we look at big words like resurrection and we get confused. We, uh, we see the stories, we've been told the stories, we, we have grown up in church, or maybe we haven't grown up in church at all, and we don't really understand what the resurrection is about. But the truth is, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central miracle for Christianity. It is more than philosophical or historical, it is quite personal. It has an impact on every one of us. It challenges us and changes us. The resurrection reorients our lives around who God really is, around his miracle working power, the power that conquered death, that defeated hell, and overwhelms the grave. That's pretty awesome. Overcoming death, defeating hell, overwhelming the grave. What we believe about the resurrection determines so much about what we believe about ourselves. What we believe about what happened to Jesus determines how we act, how we function, what we think is possible. So if you read with me Ephesians chapter 1, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to get your pen out because I want you to make some notes. If you've got a little piece of paper or a journal you can write in, that is such an important part of studying the Bible. So let's read Ephesians. It's one of the books of the Apostle Paul. It's a letter that he wrote to the, to the Ephesians, and we'll start in verse 17 in chapter 1. 
It says, I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I want you to underline the three first words of that verse. I keep asking. <laughs> you want to know what the Apostle Paul was doing in his prayer life? You want to you get an insight into how the Apostle Paul prayed? Constantly, and what was he asking for? He said, I keep asking. This is what I keep asking. This is what I keep praying about. I keep asking that the Lord, the God, Jesus Christ, our glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. This is a fantastic passage to pray over people who do not know Christ. If you have loved ones, family members, and they've never met Jesus, this is a great scripture to pray over them. God, please pour out into their hearts and their minds the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they can come to know you. Verse 18 says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Everybody say enlightened. En oh, say it with a little more fun. Enlightened. Yes. Don't you want to be enlightened? I do. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably, ooh, fun word to know and say. Everybody say it together. Incomparably. Yeah. Use that in a sentence this week. It'll be fun. Incomparably great power for us who believe. And then he begins to describe what that power looks like. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in his right, in his, at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Okay, now, you probably missed it. But I want you to get this. The power that raised Jesus from the dead, that put him in authority over everything, that's the power that Paul keeps praying that you'd figure out that lives in you. He wants to pray that you'd know the hope. He wants to pray that you'd understand the great riches that God has for you as his heir, as his child. And he wants you to know the power of the resurrected Christ. He wants you to know the power that lives in you. Part of our struggle is we don't know what the resurrection really means. But it means everything. The great theologian, N.T. Wright, great author, he said in a wonderful book called A Reason for God, if you're looking for a good book to read, it's a great, great read, A Reason for God, Tim Keller says this. Some people might say, I really struggle with this aspect of Christian teaching, or I like this part of Christian belief, but I don't think I can accept that part. The best response to this is probably, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Because if he rose from the dead, that changes everything. It is the ultimate game changer. And this is, the, this is the revelation that we have to have as people who follow Christ. Now, of course, some people, they doubt that the resurrection even happened. And I want to spend a moment talking about people who don't want to admit or don't want to acknowledge this resurrection power, which is fine. It's certainly within their realm to decide what they believe. But people, some people have a bias against miracles and especially the crazy idea of somebody rising from the dead after they were gone and buried. Here's how it goes. Typically, here's what a skeptic would say or somebody who would look at what you and I believe and they would kind of say this, all right? They would kinda, it would kind of look like this. They would debunk the resurrection by saying, well, you can't. okay, so in the first century, in those days, they didn't have our scientific knowledge. They believed in magical and supernatural happenings. They, they could have easily fallen prey to the reports of a risen Jesus because they believed that resurrections were actually possible. 
And Jesus' followers were heartbroken. And when Jesus was killed, uh, then their belief in the Messiah may have caused them to sense that he was still with them somehow, guiding them, living on in their hearts in, in spirit. Um, but some may have even felt that they had visions of him speaking to them. Over time, these feelings of Jesus living spiritually may have developed into stories that had been raised, that he'd been raised physically. That's kind of how the story goes. So what you believe is really not what you think it is. Okay, I, I think it's important to point out why we believe things. I'm interested in you knowing your Bible well enough to be able to refute what I just said. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. See, here's the thing. It's not enough just to say, well, I don't believe in miracles. It's not enough just to say, well, I, that couldn't have ever happened. It doesn't happen. I don't think it happens. There's, it's, it's, it's not possible. It's not enough just to say that and then dismiss it. You have to provide some other alternative story to the worldwide spread of Christianity. You have to provide some other story of first century Christianity that was, that was facing persecution, that spread like wildfire to thousands of people over and over again how did they change the world how did the world start being turned upside down in first century Jerusalem Judea and Samaria with a bunch of people who just believed in a hoax you have to provide some other alternative but typically they can't and so here is part of what we believe. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you start in verse 3. What you see is, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. This is the big deal. This is the Apostle Paul. This is first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to who? Peter. Cephas, and then to the twelve, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. You should underline that little phrase right there. Most of whom are still living. Though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. I like this little description. <laughs> I think it maybe describes me. One abnormally born. The Apostle Paul describes himself as that because he got knocked off a horse on the road to Damascus and was blind for three days while the Lord revealed himself to him. So it's not that visions didn't happen. But what I want to encourage you in is there is, is historical proof. It's not that we believe something silly. What you have to understand is the book of Corinthians, the Apostle Paul wrote to this, these, this group of believers in Corinth, every, almost every historian agrees that Paul's letter was written just 15 to 20 years after the death of Jesus. 20, 15 to 20 years after the death of Jesus. This means that all kinds of people were still around who could corroborate the story? 500 people at once, he says, Jesus met with, most of whom were still alive and could be consulted for corroboration. This is the big issue. How do you say this in a letter? Because Paul's letter was written to the church to be read aloud. Therefore, it was a public document. It was supposed to circulate among all the believers there. And as it was circulating, what Paul was doing was inviting anyone who doubted to go to talk to the actual eyewitnesses if they wished. Now, you understand this was easy enough because of something called the Pax Romana. It's the peace of Rome. Rome built roads everywhere. It's a beautiful, wonderful thing. Yeah, you guys learned that in history, didn't you? Rome built the roads, and guess what traveled on the roads? Not only product, but the word of God. The, the message of Jesus. The world was changed, turned upside down, using these roads. It's an amazing thing. Any of them could have come and could have looked. All, some people say, well, all those accounts of the resurrection were done way after the, the actual event. And they made stuff up because they wanted to bolster their belief. That is not true. They couldn't have bolstered a belief that people themselves were walking around having experienced. They couldn't have, they couldn't have, they couldn't have made a lie true. 
Now, will you go with me for a second? I want to keep going on this pathway for a second, but you got to, I kind of have to geek out here for a second. You, you, you know what I mean by that? It's like, we're going to talk about technical things for a second. Can you go with me? Are you sure? Are you sure you're up to it? Because it's Easter Sunday morning. You, uh, some of you just want to say, Jesus is alive and go eat ham. <laughs> That's awkward, isn't it? But I want you to go with me here. So the most, here's the thing, the most recent anthropological studies reveal <laughs> the, that ancient cultures clearly distinguish between two things. They distinguish between fictional stories and historical accounts. The most recent studies highlight the fact that every historical account that is told orally, people passing it down, Historical accounts were not to be changed. They could not be changed. They were supposed to be told over and over and over again without being changed. And as soon as somebody would dabble or change it as they were telling a story, somebody else would correct them. Hey, that's not how the story went because it was a historical account. You got to notice that these historical accounts, they were problematic in and of themselves if they were lies, okay? If the resurrection account was some kind of fabrication, they were too problematic to be lies. Take the first idea, the women. The women were the first ones to see Jesus alive. In the account, in every account, what happens is the first eyewitnesses were women. And so those women, the problem was not the women. The problem, <laughs> women are not problematic. They are wonderful. They are beautiful incredible creatures. But in first century <laughs> Judea, what you find is that the first eyewitnesses were women. And the reason that's problematic is women were not respected in this day. Women, their testimony was not even admissible in court. This, this, this part of the story would undermine their own credibility if it was a fabrica fabrication. There must have been huge pressure on the early church to remove the women from the story. That would have made everything more credible. But they didn't. Why didn't they remove it? Because it's the truth. <laughs> because it was actually true. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's, it's actually true. It's, it's, actually, it's actually true. Okay, so what you've got is, are you still with me? Your eyes haven't glazed over? Okay, so what you have is, very simply, you have two things that make this a very powerful argument. The personal eyewitnesses, 500 small groups, the 12, Peter, several, several other people. You have the eyewitnesses plus the empty tomb. And when you have both of those, if you just had one or the other, you'd have some problems. But when you have both, something else happens. If there had been only an empty tomb and no sightings, in other words, nobody would have seen Jesus, no one would have concluded it was a resurrection. What would they have concluded? They, they, they would have called him grave robbers. They would have said they stole the body and they've hidden it somewhere. Empty tomb, but no sightings. If there had only been eyewitness sightings of Jesus, but no empty tomb, no one would have concluded it was a resurrection because people... People's accounts of seeing loved ones who pass away happen all the time. You have both the empty tomb and personal eyewitnesses. What we believe is based, in fact, in some historical evidence in what actually happened. Don't let anybody tell you different. Paul's letters show that Christians proclaimed Jesus' bodily resurrection from the very beginning. The tomb had to be empty. No one, now listen, no one in Jerusalem would have believed the preaching for one minute if the tomb was not empty. If the tomb wasn't empty, how do you explain the 3,000 people that came to Christ on the day of Pentecost as Peter stood up and proclaimed the message? There was something else happening. Lastly, there's a I mean, I mean, and you could you could you could talk about the the Greek way of thinking. The Greek way of thinking when they when they think about the resurrection, they think about being liberated from a body because all physical material was bad and evil and being resurrected would be being liberated from all this death and destruction. So anybody who wanted to come back into a body 
would have been thought, that's crazy. That doesn't even make sense. The Greeks wouldn't, wouldn't have followed it. it was, the resurrection was a crazy idea. It was outside the lines of their possibilities. It wouldn't make sense. If you thought about a Jewish person, a Jewish person in the first century wouldn't have believed it either because they believed in a, 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 a resurrection at the end of all things, that things would be resurrected. All righteous people would be resurrected together and God would make all things new. They believed that actual um, material uh, earth, that uh, it was all good. God made it. It has to be good. But it would be renewed at the end and that righteous people would be resurrected. Here's the thing. They would have never believed one individual being raised from the dead. They would have said, so-and-so has been raised from the dead. Have you heard? And they would have said, are you kidding? Has injustice ceased? Has the lion laid down with the lamb? Has the end of all things come? No. Everything's just as bad as it always was. What are you talking about? It wouldn't fit in their grid of what resurrection was. So it's not as if all these people believed in magical powers and spells and they just embraced it because they're stupid. C.S. Lewis has a really good word for the people who articulate this idea. The people who think that those people didn't know what they're talking about. He calls it chronological snobbery. <laughs> chronological snobbery. You know what it means? It means those people were not as smart as us. We're way more scientific. We know way more than them. It just isn't true. The facts don't bear it out. Sure, technologically we're more advanced, but I'm not sure that's always a good thing. How do you explain then a whole new worldview that, that went across all of first century Judea, Samaria, and really several of the countries around, around Jerusalem? How do you explain the advance of Christianity. There had to be something that happened. There had to be something that happened. And what you found was not people trying to be deceptive. There was no process or development that was happening. They, usually when you get a, a worldview change, you have one uh, set of people, then one group is arguing for an idea, and then another people, set of people are arguing for an idea, and you have this conversation that goes on for several years, and you wrestle through the issues. It's like what happened in uh, slavery in America. For several years, there was a process by which the worldview changed, and people began to say, this is not right, but it took time, it took energy, it took conversation. That's typically what a worldview change requires, but in first century Palestine, resurrection came alive like that. The idea of resurrection, that Jesus had actually risen from the dead. It spread. People believed it. They embraced it. They understood it. They heard stories about it. It went everywhere. Because if, the, if Jesus rose from the dead, then what he was telling us is true. So, this is the kind of world that we step into when we begin to look back at the encounters people had with Jesus after he rose from the dead. Their world was reorienting, and we see the reorientation of it right here in the story. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. You've survived the technical part of the message. So go to Luke 24. We're going to read Dr. Luke's account of Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 1, chapter 24 says, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning. Oh, very early in the morning. How many people are sitting here and you were here setting up at 7 o'clock this morning? Very early. Oh, you guys are awesome. Come on, let's give all these people a hand. If you ever come to church and we didn't get in for some reason, it doesn't matter. If things work or things don't work, we're going to have church. We're going to have church. We'll sing some songs together. I'll shout it out from the pulpit if I don't have a mic. I'll just yell like this. <laughs> and you know why? You know why we're going to do that? You know why we're going to have church regardless if we have a bunch of instruments or a bunch of equipment? Because Jesus is alive. Yeah. And we're committed to it. 
Here it is on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women, there they are, they took the spirit. They took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Now, um, they went on the first day of the week because they'd skipped the last day of the week, which would be the Sabbath, and they were not able to anoint Jesus' body with these spices. They did that in these days to keep the body from smelling uh, as it began to decay. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. So they're coming with spices, they look, and they're coming up onto the tomb, and the stone is moved away, and they can see inside the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were there, wondering about this, suddenly, say it, suddenly, (laughs) suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them, two glowing men. The women are in, are, they're in the, the, the tomb, and they're, they're, they're there, and they're, they see the clothes, and their minds are raising, click, 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 which is just how women's brains work, really. <laughs> Men's work more like this. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so, <laughs> so they're there, they see, and all of a sudden, these two glowing men, Something is happening. Verse 5, in their fright, the women bowed down. They went straight to their faces, with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? One of the best phrases in the Bible. You should take your pen and underline it. Why do you look for the living among the dead? I love how the Message Bible translates it. It says, why do you look for life in a cemetery? That's a good question for you and me, isn't it? So many of us try to look for life in dead things. So many people search for life in things that are useless, death-giving, not life-giving. They search for these things. They put their time and energy into money or sex or power. They're consumed with it. They're trying to get things into their life so they can have some life, so that their life can be full, so their life can be enjoyable, and yet they're missing the one who is life. Jesus is the one who said it. John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. These women's worldview, their worldviews were being turned upside down right now. They had, they had faced an incredible, incredibly disappointing experience by this man that they'd followed for three years. They'd watched him do miracles. They'd seen him do all kinds of incredible things. And they'd followed him. They'd supported him. They'd, they'd cooked for him. They'd helped him in the ministry. They'd ministered to other people, and here they are at the tomb. Notice what, notice what the angel said to him. He is not here. He is risen. Remember? Everybody say remember. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day, be raised again. Verse 8 says, then they remembered his words. Shocking how you can forget things, isn't it? As I get older, I realize how more, much more easily it happens. Just forgetting things. The, these women were part of the meetings, I'm sure. You see the record in the Gospels. You see Jesus speaking to his disciples over and over and saying, I want you to know something's going to happen. I'm going to be turned over to the chief priests, and they're going to put me to death, and then I'm going to rise again on the third day. He told them. He gave them warning. He told them over and over again, but you know why they couldn't hear it? You know why they couldn't get it? It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't even something you should say. It didn't make any sense to them. They were thinking, oh, Jesus, he's just being, you know, spiritual. Right? It's, it's like you, it's, they didn't get it. Who raises from the dead? That doesn't happen. 
Here it is, the women suddenly remember when they say his words. Sometimes the only way we can make it in this world is when it's falling apart is to remember the words of Jesus. Sometimes the only way we can really make it through is we've got to remember the words of Jesus. Jesus wants you to remember his words. He doesn't want you to conveniently forget. He doesn't want you to fill your life with other things so much so that you can't remember what he said. And here's how it happens. Your marriage starts going south. Financial pressure starts mounting. A child wanders away and does something crazy or stupid. Suddenly, you don't remember the words of Jesus. You don't remember the words of the scripture that help you to know that this is not going to last. That you have an answer, a solution, that money is not your God or your source, that God is your source, that your husband or your, or your wife is not your source, that as foolish as they seem now, whatever's happening in your relationship, there is a solution, and you can find it in the words of Jesus. That's the thing. Then they remembered his words. Verse 9, then they came back from the tomb, and they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told them, who told this to the apostles. Verse 11. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Now, this is pretty funny to me. All these women, oh, Jesus alive. It's amazing. I saw him. This is incredible. What are you talking about? <laughs> Men, have you ever had an ex experience like this with your wife? She's talking to you, and yet it seems like nonsense. Now, truth be told, it's not nonsense. She actually knows. You're just so thick-headed you can't get it. See, see how I did that right there? See how, see how I brought that back around? That was, <laughs> These guys, they didn't believe the women because their words to the, seemed to them like nonsense. Now listen, sometimes what you believe will feel like nonsense. In fact, the scriptures teach that foolish things, God loves foolish things that confound wise people. He loves weak things that shame strong people. He likes to demonstrate who he is by foolishness sometimes. And, and it's clear that the cross of Jesus Christ is foolishness to the world. So you will feel like you're believing in nonsense, but that's what they call faith. Faith in the resurrection felt like nonsense to these guys. Peter, verse 12, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Don't you love Peter? So obnoxious. He's a man of action. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself, what just happened? What, what just happened? Peter's life and the lives of his friends were being reoriented to a new miraculous reality full of life and hope. Could it be true? Should I believe this? This is crazy. Jesus appears once again. Verse 15, continue to read with me. Now the same day... Underline those two words, same day. Under, same day. Which day is that? <laughs> Which day was that? It was same day. <laughs> I know, I led you right into it. I'm sorry. It was Sunday. So this is the very day that he, that he has risen from the dead. That same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles away. I want you to underline that little seven miles right there. Seven miles. Most of us probably haven't walked seven miles recently. They did it all the time in these days. But it takes time. It's quite a, quite a journey. Seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. So you got to see this. Here's two guys, and they're walking along. They're just, you know, walking in the dirt and the dust. And then Jesus kind of shows up by them. 
he probably didn't have that goofy grin on his face. But, but he shows up, and watch what he says. They didn't quite recognize him. Verse 17, he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? Did he know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they stood still. Now, why, why is he doing this? I think Jesus is messing with these guys. Because that's what Jesus does with people. He messes with them. He messes them up. And I want you to see what, what's happening here. Because Jesus, Jesus is more than an impersonal and disconnected deity. The point of this resurrection story is not to ascent, a mental ascent to some ideas about life and the resurrection. The point of this story is Jesus is coming to have a conversation with two men. Just like he wants to have with you. Jesus, make no mistake, Jesus is the face and personality of God's great love. We're not, we're not trying to believe a set of ideas alone. There are ideas. Doctrine is important. But Christianity is not about what you know. It's about who you know. So, here he is. What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? Haven't you seen the Fox News report? Haven't you seen the Jerusalem Times? I mean, it's all over the front page. What are you? Oh, you're a visitor. All right. Notice what Jesus says. What things? <laughs> okay, is he messing with them or not? He's totally messing with them. He wants to see what they're going to say. What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was the one. There's nothing so difficult on a human heart as hope that never comes to pass. That's what the Bible says. It says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. These two guys, you can hear the, the, the disappointment, the discouragement in their voice. We had hoped he was the one, but they killed him. They couldn't even get their brains. They couldn't wrap their brains around it. And what is more, they continued, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. <laughs> they went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are. And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? I want you to put those two little words together, suffering and glory. I want you to see that there is indeed suffering that Jesus had to go through that would propel him into his glory it's the same with you and me. You've heard people say it. They say it a little differently these days. They say, no pain, no gain. It's a truism. Jesus is tapping into this. He says, didn't you understand? There, there will be suffering. Actually, the apostle Paul talks about it himself. In Philippians, if I could just read it to you. The apostle Paul says, in Philippians 3.10, he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. See, here's the problem. We want to know Jesus in the power of his resurrection without the suffering, without, without all the difficult things. But see, here's the problem. Surrender has to do with suffering. Surrendering to Jesus and his work, surrendering to the life that only God can provide for you has death in it. And as you surrender, as you yield to those sufferings, as you yield to the death of yourself, you get to receive the life that is in Jesus. That's why you can say with the Apostle Paul, I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and 
the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow, some miracle to attain to the resurrection from the dead. I believe in the resurrection. That's why I can walk through the suffering. Here's the truth. There is no resurrection without death. There is no resurrection without death. If you go back to Luke 24, verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. <laughs> you need to, you need to write, just put your, put your pen there and underline that little thing. So they're walking along. They're getting to their village. He's explaining everything to them. And as they get to the village, he's like, okay, well, see you guys later. Why did he do that? Yes, he was messing with them, but I think he wanted to see what they would do. See, I think, I think often we're faced with decisions that Jesus will let us make. He wants to see what they'll decide. He wants to see where the conversation will lead. So he lets them make the decision, which he lets you and me. If we decide to invite him, then he comes. If we decide to let him go, he goes. <laughs> I didn't write it. I just read it. So, <laughs> so, so here he is. Jesus acted as if we were going further. But they urged him strongly, oh, no, 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 stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread gave thanks, and broke it. This is sounding familiar. You could imagine them sitting there at the table. They were there, and he starts doing this, and they're like, hey, <laughs> this looks familiar. Something about this. I've seen this somewhere before. He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to him. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. Why did he disappear from their sight? He was messing with them again. See, what you see is the personality of Jesus. You see the relational nature of God here, and you see him commu communicating to him who he, to them who he is. Disappearing in that moment, I am the risen Christ, and I'm going to show you. It's so amazing. It's so amazing. Let me say this, we often don't recognize Jesus until we're willing to have deep communion with him. To have communion with him. Our lives are so full. Our lives are full of busyness, full of distraction, full of all kinds of things. We're walking, we gotta get to the next village. We're trying to make this happen. We gotta walk seven miles. You know, that's a really long ways to go. I gotta go. You and I, have to make time for that communion with Jesus. And as we do, we begin to realize, now listen, as we do make time for him, as we sit and commune with him, as we nourish, are nourished with him, here's what happens. We begin to realize he's been with us all along. See, the problem is, is we kind of go on our merry way and we don't even realize that he's here. Sometimes you're going through the circumstances or the issues that you're facing in your life, a, 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 a failed marriage or financial ruin or collapse or struggle or, or, or something else that's going on and you're just wrestling through it and your job is a mess. What am I doing? Why isn't Jesus helping me? You don't even realize he's been walking with you the entire time. That's what we've got to do. We've got to be willing and able to make time with him. Could it be true of you today? The fact that you've come on an Easter Sunday, a beautiful day. You didn't have to come and sit in a stinky, sticky theater, have Easter Sunday, and yet here you are. Could it be that you are facing something that is so difficult and so hard, you haven't really seen Jesus anywhere. 
you're disappointed, you've lost hope. Because the, the power of this story that we've just read together is Jesus had already been resurrected. They just didn't know it. They thought their worst fears had come to pass. They thought their greatest disappointments were right ahead of them. They were in fear, the scripture says in other passages in the gospels, of what would happen to them, what people would do to them. They didn't know that he had already been resurrected, that the power of God had already been manifest and declared in their world. They didn't know it, and yet it was there. That's you. That's me. We live like that. And what I want to challenge you today is I want to challenge you to open up your heart and open up your mind, open up your eyes to the idea that Jesus is calling you. Dare I say he's messing with you. That there's stuff going on in your life and you can't quite figure it out. But what it is, is Jesus leading you and guiding you and desiring that you call him, that you will call on him, that you will communicate with him, that you will share with him. See, the nature of God is relational. He is going to chase you. He's going to call you. He's going to find opportunities to walk along with you. He wants to meet you. He wants to be part of you. He wants your life to be part of his life, his life to be poured into your life. That is the nature of the gospel message. And this Resurrection Sunday is the perfect day, no matter what you're facing, to respond to him and say, okay, Jesus, I see. I see you. My eyes are opened. You are the resurrection and the life. And I want to give you my life. Close your eyes and let's pray together. Do you just take a moment and I want you to consider where you are, the journey you're on, what's happening to you, what's going on in your life. Maybe you're here because somebody brought you. Maybe you're here because you saw an ad or, or you just wanted to go somewhere for Easter Sunday. Maybe where you are in your life, you can't seem to find Jesus anywhere. You feel like he's either deserted you or left you. The disappointment has crept up in your life and, and you're just trying to figure out which way to go, what's next. Maybe you're here out of desperation. Maybe you just came because a friend asked you and you're trying to be a good friend. Whatever the case, I want you to hear that Jesus is calling you that Jesus is speaking to you and he wants to open your eyes to his life. That he wants to share with you the power that lives in him to say no to your own failed life plan. To give your life plan to him and to, then to receive his plan instead of yours. It's better... It's better than anything you could conjure up. I guarantee it. The power, the resurrection power of Christ can come into your life and give you the strength to say no to sin. To come and lay your burdens down at the feet of Jesus. He's calling you. He wants to communicate to you and he wants you to give your life to him. Now, make no mistake, what I'm talking about is not just receiving something. I'm talking about giving him something. I'm talking about surrender, total and complete. Death to yourself, death to your way of life, and a yes to the life of Christ in you. That's what we're talking about here. It's a big decision. All across the room with your eyes closed, I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you forward. I just want, if this is you, if this describes you, if you want to respond to Jesus calling out to you. I just want you to lift your hand in the air. I just want you to make a declaration somehow. Yeah, I see that. Yeah, just do it right now. Just don't hesitate anymore. Just shoot your hand up in the air and say, yes, Jesus, I need your life. I need your resurrection power. I see you. I see you up here on the left. I see you way up on top. Yep, two or three more up there. Anybody else? Just lift your hand up and say, yes, I want you, Jesus. I need you, Jesus. I need the life of God in me. 
I can't make it on my own. This journey, this journey is too heavy. It's too, the hill is too steep. The climb is too hard. I need you. So I surrender to you. Anybody else? If you're wrestling, if there's some wrestling in your heart right now, don't hold back. Just lift, just lift up your hand. Yeah, I see you. Yep, I see you, brother. Anybody else? Yep. Oh, it's so good. What you're doing, what you're saying is, I want to be filled with the life of Christ. I want to be raised again. I want to start a new life today. Anybody else? Yep, I see you, brother. Up there on top. It's good. Jesus is speaking. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Let's all pray together now. You can put your hands down, and I want you to pray this prayer with me. Now, we say things we don't mean way too often. We're not just reciting words here. What we're doing is we're mixing faith with our words. And we're going to pray this prayer, and I want you to give your life to him. I'm going to say the words, and you're going to repeat after me. But I want you to believe what's going on in your heart. I want you to embrace what Jesus is doing in your life and give yourself to him. All across the room, would you say this prayer with me? Everybody together, even if you didn't raise your hand, everybody together, say, Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you sent him to die on a cross for me, for my sins, for my shame, for my failures, for my foolishness. I receive Jesus. I receive his work. I receive life today. Forgive me for my sins. I leave the past behind today. Would you make me new? Make me a new person. Fill me with your life. Breathe into me. I refuse the ways of the world. I choose you. I lay my life down. I make you Lord of my life. I want to serve you, and I want to follow you. Now let me just pray over you. Father, thank you for these prayers that have been prayed. Thank you for answering these prayers. Thank you for giving new life. Thank you for forgiveness of sins. Thank you for healing in every heart. Thank you for a resurrection life, a brand new start to a life that was dead, the replacement of life in each one of us. Father, we thank you for this. Reorient our minds now around what is possible. Reconfigure the way that we look at the world and help us to see who you are and what you want to do with us. Help us to see what's possible in our lives with you inside of us. We thank you for this. We receive it now in Jesus' name. Amen.